Aladdin is the latest Disney live-action remake of an animated classic. The 1992 original starred Robin Williams as the genie, and this time it's Will Smith. Let me take your order, I'll jot it down, you ain't never had a friend like me. The genie is still blue, and there's still a mischievous monkey. But director Guy Ritchie has some ideas of his own, too. I'm Stephen Thompson. And I'm Linda Holmes. Aladdin also stars Mina Masood and Naomi Scott as your new Aladdin and Jasmine. Here in the studio with me and Stephen to talk about the film is Glenn Weldon of the NPR Arts Desk. Hey, Glenn. Hey, Linda. And in our fourth chair, coming to us from the great state of California, is Sam Sanders, the host of It's Been a Minute and... A Will Smith loyalist, as he has explained on Twitter. Hi, Sam. Hello. Forever and for always, Team Will. I don't care. Absolutely. Whatever he does. No, I, I hear you. And I don't, <laughs> Whatever completely, I don't completely disagree. And, and I'm going to come back to you in a second. I'm going to start yes. with Glenn. Mm-hmm. Glenn, let's start with just how did this strike you as a Disney musical, live action musical in the tradition of such classics as Beauty and the Beast? Uh-huh. Look, let's start by reminding ourselves and our listeners that this is a kid's movie, and to that extent, it'll work fine. you got a kid. They're hot. It's the summer. Take them. They'll have fun. The stuff in the Cave of Wonders is, is kind of fun scary. The conceit is solid. The music, even when they biff the execution, which I think they do repeatedly, uh, it's still that music, right? So uh, I'm not going to be mad at it for kids. But let's talk to those listeners who love the animated film, uh, the 1992 animated film, and are wondering how they've updated it, how they've changed it, what they brought to it. Uh, For those folks, I think this is a big swing and a miss. They updated the politics, which is good. They cast brown people in a story about brown people. That's a low bar, but they cleared it. They gave the character of Jasmine more to do, including a new anthem of empowerment called Speechless, which will get nominated for Best Song and will be the pee break you need to take about midway through the Oscar ceremony. (laughs) Uh, A lot of the reason why it doesn't work for adults is a fundamental mismatch between genre and director. Because on paper, the director, Guy Ritchie, like he makes lots of action films, action movie fight scenes are bodies in motion. Musical dance numbers our bodies in motion. Makes sense on paper, but complete whiff. So I think we have to talk about this in terms of two audiences. And for the audience that I'm talking to, it's a big no. I think that's exactly right. I think it is a fine kids movie, not very good for people who love the 1992 film. Sam, as I said, you're a Will Smith guy. Yes. You came into this saying Will Smith is the genie. I thought he was a good like theoretical idea As the genie, what did you think of the film? So my critique of Will Smith in this movie is my critique of the entire movie, which is my critique of late capitalist corporate (laughs) behemoth Disney. Uh This is a movie that is afraid to be great. Uh It's decent. But for whatever reason, they focus grouped the life out of it. And they didn't let the parts that were new or the parts that were full of life rule the show. For instance, Will Smith as the genie. He only works when he stops trying to be Robin Williams. He only works when he stops being blue and starts being Will Smith. And it's like this is emblematic of a corporation that just has to stay big. They don't take chances anymore. What would happen if we let Will Smith totally Will Smithify his role? What would happen if we actually let Jasmine lead the movie? Because she was the one who could sing in this movie. The other ones couldn't. What if it was a movie just about Jasmine, her backstory, her motivations? What if they took some chances? And it just feels like this is honestly a business story. 
we see Disney ruling the world, bigger than life, but they've gotten to this point where nothing they do seems new anymore. And they're afraid to use the resources they have to move some of these stories forward. And so instead, we get reboots and remakes and reboots and remakes that are fine. It's just fine. Wow. I was really ranty there. I'm sorry. No, I think this is so dead on. I had the same reaction as you. There's a moment when Aladdin says to the genie, who is Will Smith, who by this time, there is an incarnation of the genie where he stops being blue and he becomes mostly Will Smith. Yeah. But there's a moment where Aladdin says to him, like, do you really have to have the top knot? And he sort of says, like, yeah, it's my little cherry on top. Don't have him have the top knot. Just have him be Will Smith. Exactly. And he's still funny. And, like, I agree with you. It's totally in the shadow of the Robin Williams performance, which it did not need to be. Steven, yes. Steven, talk to me and Sam. What did you think? I just agree with absolutely everything <laughs> Glenn and Sam just said. I have written in my notes right here. If you loved Beauty and the Beast, the remake. Yeah. And which some, <laughs> which, hey, some people did. Made some a lot of money. Did. That's why we're here. It made yeah. billions of dollars. If you liked that treatment, if that worked for you, I think this felt very similar. What those two movies have in common, they are big, they are loud, they are expensive, they are sure to be beloved by some, they are sure to be reviled by others, they will make a billion dollars and have absolutely no other reason to exist. Yeah. And I just felt that all the way through this movie. I do think there is something that doesn't necessarily get talked about enough, which is when you're trying to adapt an animated movie into live action or quote unquote live action because there's a lot of CGI in this it sometimes takes on or it often takes on a sluggishness Mm. and there is just a little lag that happens in a lot of these scenes and especially in a lot of these songs some of the Mm -hmm. songs that are uh, the Prince Ali song that is pitched more slowly and it feels like it's pitched more slowly in order to let everyone keep up with it in animation you can have them unrealistically dancing at Mm. at time and a half speed Mm -hmm. you can't necessarily do that with people although they try although they they try they try and Guy Ritchie has this habit that comes from some of his other directing. What am I talking about, Glenn? You're talking I, about overcranking and undercranking, so yeah. it looks sped up and then it looks oh, slowed down. Was that, okay, Glenn, is yes. was that what it was? Yes. I was like, am uh-huh. I am yes. I crazy? Am I drunk? What's no, happening? It's sped up, and it's and oh. I think there's a weird thing. It's exactly what Stephen is saying. You can see it in particular in the dance over the credits, the mm-hmm. dance at the end to the, the remix of Prince Ali, exactly. <laughs> where they're by Will Smith. where they're speeding it up. And I understand, like, the sped-up dancing has a look to it, but I don't understand the need for it. The funniest thing about this, Stephen said the words big and expensive. And one of the things that was surprising to me was that although I am sure that this production in actual scope was both big Mm -hmm. and expensive, to me it looks both small and cheap. And I was surprised how much I thought it looked small and cheap. Mm. Most of it looked like not a Disney film, but a Disney theme park attraction. (laughs) I (laughs) I think it looks small. I think Agrabah, the fictional city in which all this takes, the soundstage, looks not just like a soundstage, but like 
a not very big soundstage. I didn't feel any scope to it. I didn't feel any size to it. And while we're talking about Agrabah, the fictional city, I don't want to get too deep into this before I say, as far as I'm concerned, it is a totally valid response to this film, as it would have been in 1992, to say this whole thing is DQ'd as an exercise in generic Orientalism on a Disney scale, as a kind of a white fantasy of the the, the mysterious, the mysterious East. East. Yeah. like and and although i think there's a special feature they did about like we went to jordan we wanted it to look authentic but authentically what <laughs> yes. this is not a real place it is not they are not real people it is a fantasy well yeah go and, ahead and that's what's so confusing about it because i've seen movies where fantasy lands in brown places of the world work. I'm talking about Wakanda. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's just like, you can pull this off, but it requires research. It requires expertise. Like, the folks behind Black Panther spent time and mm-hmm. research with, like, historians and linguists to develop this world that really felt pan-African and, and true to something. And it seems like no one actually called, I don't know, a historian or an anthropologist to be like, how might this soundstage actually feel real? And I don't think there's anything to get to. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, Mm. I don't think there is a historical reality to try to emulate or be true to. Glenn, what are you Mm. thinking? Well, it's it's playing on this Hollywood version of, like, Sheik of Araby, Thief of Baghdad. Mm -hmm. And that's where you set most of the film in this fantasy place. But then you end with a Bollywood number. That is 2,000 miles away. Mm-hmm. That's like if your entire film is set in Barcelona and you end with Polish folk dancing yeah. because these are white people. <laughs> well, and well, there was a moment where they do the screw in the light bulb dance yeah. at the end. Yeah. And I was just like, yeah. am I? Did I? Was that? Yeah. And there's also, to call this a live action film is an insult to the language because it means words mean nothing because this is so CGI. Everything about this is CGI. I think... Will Smith spends about one-fifth of his screen time as Will Smith, and four-fifths mm. of it lost deep in the Uncanny Valley. Very in that much kind so. of it, Like, his face is just off. There's a dance number, Friend Like Me, in the Cave of Wonders. Uh, Heard that, of it. That needs CGI because it's about demonstrating what magic can do. Mm-hmm. There's a moment toward the end when it's like at the big finish, they Aladdin and the genie are dancing, and we pull back for the big finish, and it's clear at some point that they turn Aladdin and the genie into CGI figures who are dancing, and it's like... That felt like a fundamental betrayal of the contract with the audience. I I sat there going, how dare you? Right. Because I'm okay with CGI stunts, but something about CGI dancing, which is about (laughs) skill, is like, nope, this far, no further. And, you know, the interesting thing about this, too, is that it's been a Broadway musical. So this is not the first effort to do Mm. this story and this musical outside of Robin Williams and the 1992 film. However... When you're doing it on a Broadway stage, it's necessarily so different that you don't, I suspect, get as bogged down in that Robin Williams performance. And part of it is just this poignantly made me very aware of how much I admired that Robin Williams performance Mm -hmm. and how much I think it was that part of him, that side of him, that kind of super manic this was the way to use it, was in a cartoon where you could visualize all the little he was switching between voices. And I think this is so in the shadow of that performance. Stephen, what are you thinking? Yeah, I mean, that Robin Williams performance, yes, it's a classic, and yes, it's a perfect use of Robin Williams. It's also deeply idiosyncratic. It is. And and at times really does not age well. I think, Glenn, you were tweeting about, like, why doesn't Will Smith have a William F. Buckley impersonation? (laughs) (laughs) 
for Arsenio Hall. Yeah. Arsenio yeah. Hall. Whoop, whoop, whoop. Not to mention a gay hairdresser. Yeah, yeah. Which sure, was a big sure. part of, of which that performance. This too. movie wisely does not include. But it does still manage to feel weirdly dated in some ways. Yeah. Five seconds into the closing credits, I hear the two words I've come to dread the most DJ Khaled! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was weird. You ain't never had a friend, never had a friend. Never! You ain't never had a friend, never had a friend. Never! Never! I feel like speaking about DJ Khaled and the Will Smith rap remix of this song, musically, the film didn't know what it wanted. For me, one mm-hmm. of the, the like musical high point was hearing Jasmine's character sing a new song called Speechless, written by two all-stars, Benj Pasek and Justin Paul, who wrote Dear Evan Hansen yep. and Greatest Showman. Like They're good at what they do, and they make good songs that work for this moment. I kept saying to myself, why didn't they just have more songs in the movie? Well, right. And I think one of the things that I realized when I went back to revisit my appreciation of the 1992 film, knowing that this was coming, was realizing, oh, it really is driven by four songs, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. There's a one jump that Aladdin is singing as he goes through the marketplace. That's where we meet Aladdin. Right. Mm-hmm. There are two genie songs, which come quite close together. There's Friend Like Me and then Prince Ali. And then there's A Whole New World, of yeah. course. And as Sam says, they add the one song, but it's also true that you don't actually have a ton of music in mm-hmm. this musical to rely on. And I felt like they were trying to update, quote unquote, the mm-hmm. music in this way where like all they did was kind of fuss with the beat in this way that made it feel like an effort to make it more poppy, but then it lost, for example. It's like the kids bopped it. Well, exactly. (laughs) The kids bopped it, exactly. Because, you know, Friend Like Me has a very kind of Cab Calloway feel Mm -hmm. to it. When you get that kind of stuff, you can update the feel of it, right, Mm -hmm. as it is in Hamilton. Right. But you don't just change the beat and leave everything else kind of the same, or what you wind up with is a song drained of its reason to exist. Right. Mm. On that tip, I'm going to push back against this notion that when Will Smith is just Will Smith, this movie works. I'm well, going to say... Get out of my house. Don't I'm, say that. I'm instead <laughs> going to say that Will Smith was fundamentally miscast here because I'm not going to lay a whole queer studies thesis down on y'all about how, you know, uh, (laughs) the character of the genie as portrayed in the 92 film is a trickster spirit, uh, (laughs) which means it exists to challenge and subvert certain norms, not just the physical laws of the universe with magic, but, you know, social, economic, uh, sexual, uh, and also that he's a shapeshifter. Shapeshifters must, of necessity, uh, have a fluidity of things that extends to gender expression. I'm not going to do that, but if I did, uh, the thesis would be called <laughs> Genie Gotta Be Queenie, and uh, <laughs> it would have a slash and a, a colon and a long subtitle. You know what, though? Will Smith, there were moments when Will Smith is brown genie, not blue genie. I was like, yes, queen. Like oh. he was giving me a little bit of that vibe. Oh, someone has gotten used to their gilded cage. <laughs> I, listen, there were there were some side eyes. There was some top knot playage. There was some like he was a little like I wanted more of that because yeah, like when you think of the genie, like he's gay, he's queer. I wish they would have let Will Smith lean into that more because he, he can do though. it. He won't. He, he won't. refuses to. Sam, that's the point. This is a brassy musical. There's a Cab Calloway pastiche in the middle of it. For God's sake, this requires some uns 
unselfconsciously manic, jazz-handy fabulousness, which is not, I say, I posit, it's not Will Smith's wheelhouse. This guy, his energy is cool. This part yeah. requires a different kind of energy. In the Prince Ali number, he sings a few bars in drag, right? Uh-huh. But he looks uncomfortable. I feel uncomfortable for him. He's a quarterback in his girlfriend's cheerleader outfit on Spirit Day. Now, now I want to say, I want to say one thing. Both Robin Williams in the original and the guy who did it on Broadway, James Monroe Eigelhart, who won the Tony for it, both straight dudes. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about how when Robin Williams created the part, he was big, the part was big. When James Monroe Eigelhart inhabited it, he went bigger. And what Will Smith is trying to do, scene after scene, is downsize the role to fit mm. him but I think to fit okay. what he does. I think that's okay. I think that would have been okay. I think the problem is, you know, to quote a great skating coach in the classic film The Cutting Edge. <laughs> wow. Yeah, you go halfway, you get hurt. Yeah. So mm. and I think part of what they've done here is they're not doing big. He can't quite successfully get it to be a Will Smith specialty part. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he's kind of trapped in that what you're calling uncanny valley. Yeah. Right. Sam, well, you're you're the Will Smith defender. Be with me. <laughs> well, what version of Will Smith could Will Smith channel to make this character work? And I think he was trying to give you Independence Day hero vibes and yep. stoic cool vibes sometimes, but what I wanted was bad boys and bad boys too, Will Smith. Mm-hmm. Totally sarcastic, totally snarky, but still lovable. I would like that. I would watch that. And if this film and if Disney took chances anymore, maybe they could have let him just totally reinvent the character to fit a better version of Will Smith. If we could pick anyone in the world right now to play the genie in this remake, who should, could it be? Billy Eichner? Uh, Billy Eichner, sure. <laughs> oh, Ooh. man. You're, you're halfway right. Although, do you want to hear him sing? Uh, he, well, we'll see. You know who can sing? And we'll do it. Billy Porter. Billy Porter oh, is perfect. Wow. Billy That's Porter. It. Let's remake it right that now. Oh, my God. Let's just do idea. the whole thing right now with Billy Porter. I agree. Agrabah pose edition. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell us what you think of Aladdin, either original or new or both. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PCHH or tweet us at PCHH. When we come back, it's going to be time for our favorite segment of this week and every week, what is making us happy this week. So come right back. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Madewell, where the motto is, good days start with great jeans. How did they make them so great? Madewell starts with premium denim, then offers men's and women's styles for seriously everyone. Also, you can recycle any brand of jeans in a Madewell store, and they'll give you $20 off a new pair. They work with the Blue Jeans Go Green program to turn old jeans into housing insulation for communities in need. Terms apply. Ready to find your perfect fit? Stop by a Madewell store or go to madewell.com. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Zoom. When you can't be there in person, Zoom. Zoom is used by millions to connect face-to-face, across town, or around the world. Share files, video, anything, and connect through any device, desktop, laptop, tablet, smartphone, or conference room system. Zoom video conferencing, Zoom rooms, Zoom video webinars, and Zoom phone lets you do business at the speed of Zoom. Visit Zoom online to set up your free account today. Meet happy with Zoom. Welcome back to Pop Culture Happy Hour. It's time for our favorite segment, What is Making Us Happy This Week? Stephen Thompson, what is making you happy this week? Well, it is uh, the end of the traditional TV season, which means it is the end of the latest season of Saturday Night Live. And as I am now doing every year, apparently, I put together a 
what I think is a comprehensive ranking of the 21 musical guests on Saturday Night Live this season, ranked, as I said in the headline, from number one to Greta Van Fleet. <laughs> um, this is a this is a Harsh. large this is a large undertaking. It's not quite the scope of of Glenn Weldon's uh, free comic book day roundup, but it is a large undertaking, and it necessitated going back and watching a whole bunch of episodes of Saturday Night Live and discovering or rediscovering several, I think, pretty glorious musical performances on the show that I would very, very highly recommend. One is by the rapper Travis Scott, who manages to perform over and in and around uh, what I described uh, in the piece as a holographic smoke fantasia, Uh uh, which is really gorgeous to look at. And then a really electrifying performance by Anderson Pack. that if you can track it down online, these things have a way of drifting on and off YouTube, but if you can track down that Anderson Pack performance, it is really something to behold. He is such an electrifying live performance. His Tiny Desk Concert is the most viewed Tiny Desk mm-hmm. Concert in the history of them. Huh. Uh, it really? Been viewed, it has been viewed on YouTube more than 34 million times. More than T-Pain. More than T-Pain, more <sighs> than Mac Miller, who, uh, <sighs> which has, for many reasons, been viewed a yeah. lot. It's also great. That Anderson Pack performance has blown them all away, and I think it is because it's so good. Yeah. Uh, he mm-hmm. is an amazing live performer, and it was just a joy to kind of rediscover that in ranking all of these performances. And I will say, in addition to Greta Van Fleet, also terrible is Kanye West in a Perrier bottle. And, oh, I remember And that. effing DJ Khaled, <laughs> who managed to bring out a parade of stars and then basically figuratively blow an air horn over them. <laughs> you, yeah, you really need to read this piece, if only for Steven's description of DJ Khaled. Yep. Anyway, <laughs> the, it is the good performances on Saturday Night Live that are actually making me happy this week. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Stephen Thompson. Glenn Weldon, what is making you happy this week? Another Eurovision has come and gone, <laughs> and I got a chance to uh, go on Sam's show and talk about Eurovision. Yes, uh, you did. And I, it was really in, fun. In preparation for that, I went back and listened to the show that we did three years ago, the first time all of us had actually watched it all the way through. And at first I thought, well, something's wrong here because the, the file must be corrupted because my voice does not sound like that. What's wrong with my voice? Joy, turns out. <laughs> Joy is what was wrong with my voice. Uh, this feeling of that I had discovered something that was going to be with me for the rest of my life. It wasn't broadcast in the U.S. this year, so I streamed it from the Swedish site onto my phone, then mirrored my phone onto my TV, and then two minutes before it started, I realized, oh, this means I can't tweet. (laughs) This means I can't take a picture of the screen. So I ran through the entire cabin, and I found a five-year-old iPad that has has not been charged in a while, plugged it in. Yes, I know. This is the degree of my sickness. And then I would tweet using an iPad like a pioneer. (laughs) Um, (laughs) The Netherlands won this year with a song called Arcade by a hot bisexual guy named Duncan Lawrence. I'm pleased for the Dutch. I am pleased for Bob visibility, but the song is a real snooze. You can find all these on YouTube by now, both the performance and the the original music video they did. But my favorite is Switzerland, which has a real bop by a guy with good arms. And ultimately, (laughs) that's what Eurovision's all about. Wonderful. (laughs) Thank you so much, Glenn Weldon. Sam Sanders, our buddy on the West Coast, what is making you happy this week? What I'm most happy about this week, and don't pull me out of here when I say it, that new Ed Sheeran, Justin Bieber song. It's I don't not care. bad. It's not bad. Huh. It's, I will pause it. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> and let me tell you why. I realize now that Ed Sheeran and to a lesser extent, Justin Bieber have latched onto a groove and they're riding this thing and they've been riding it for a while. I call it in my mind, white man's reggaeton. A little <laughs> boom, cha, boom, cha, boom. It 
was the same beat that was in Sorry. It was kind of the same beat that Ed Sheeran had in Shape of You. And it's a beat that is here in this song called I Don't Care. And it just works. I'm at a party I don't want to be at. And I don't ever wear a suit and tie. I'm wondering if I can sneak out the back. Nobody's even looking me in my eyes. Can you take my hand, finish my drink, say, shall we dance? Hell yeah. I heard that song for the first time, and my first thought was, you can't unring this bell. This song is now on the wind throughout the universe until the end of existence. Yeah, yeah, I hear ya. I also want Ed Sheeran to, like, take his songwriting to all different kinds of spaces. I want to see an, a musical where Ed Sheeran writes the songs. Do you? I want to see it. Yes, I do. Just because it's like, it's so positive. I'm sorry. This is like chicken soup for the soul. I tell you what, Ed Sheeran, he just does it for me. I like it. Thank you very much, Sam Sanders. So what is making me happy this week is a new series that is available on Netflix as you hear this. It is called What If. Mm-hmm. It is meant to be an anthology series. And it is from the guy who made the ABC show Revenge. Revenge! <laughs> and the that is a very good feel for what this is. It is, I would be very hard pressed to say that it is good, and yet it is very enjoyable. It features Renee Zellweger as a sort of a predatory venture capitalist who swans about her apartment, her lovely home, in beautiful, flowy pants and looks meaningfully out the window. She decides to set up a young couple with an indecent proposal situation. If you do not remember that movie, it was uh, Robert Redford as a rich guy who paid a million dollars to the couple played by Woody Harrelson and Demi Moore to spend the night with her. So Renee Zellweger, predatory cougaress, makes a similar offer to this couple, but that is only the beginning because she has all kinds of other secrets. Uh, This is a 10-episode series, but it is gloriously dopey in a way that I weirdly admire. Throw yourself into it if it sounds like the kind of thing you might like. Think of it as Netflix's revenge with more <laughs> with more naked butts because you can put naked butts on uh-huh. uh, Netflix. So it's called What If It Is on Netflix, and I kind of weirdly recommend it. And that is what is making me happy this week. That brings us to the end of our show. You can find all of us on Twitter. You can find me at Linda Holmes. You can find Stephen at I Dislike Stephen. You can find Glenn at G.H. Weldon. And you can find Sam at Sam Sanders and listen to his show. It's been a minute. You can find our producer, Jessica Reedy, at Jessica underscore Reedy. And our producer, Lauren Landau, at Lauren M. Landau. Our producer, Emeritus and music director, Mike Katzif, is at Mike Katzif. That's K-A-T-Z-I-F. Mike's band, Hello, Come In, provides the music you're bobbing your head to right now. So thanks so much to all of you for being here. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you, Sam. And thanks to all of you for listening. We will see you right back here next week. This week on Rough Translation... I'm not angry at... A reporter discovers an uncomfortable truth about her mother's alcoholism. I know that I lied to myself. You lied to me. I lied to everybody, Julia. And then she travels to the other side of the world to find out if there's a better way to deal with lies on Rough Translation. 